This episode of Lucky Paper Radio is brought to you by Magic the Gathering's latest product, Secret Lair Chevrolet. Wizards of the Coast has partnered with General Motors, America's largest automobile manufacturer, to bring you five new cards legal in all eternal formats. Trample over your opponents and over any terrain with Chevy Silverado. Keep your commander safe with anti-lock brakes. Shift the tempo of the game into your favor with six-speed automatic transmission. Control the board in any format and in any weather with Chevy's proprietary traction control system. And of course, burn out your opponents with the iconic Stingray Corvette. Secret Lair Chevrolet is available today for pre-order for just $5.99 down and $2.99 a month for 24 months. Order now. If you have any issues with Secret Lair Chevrolet, please tweet them at General Motors. Whatever you do, don't email Mark Rosewater. That guy gets enough views as it is. Besides, he's really more of a Ford man. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Andy, and I'm here with my friend, Anthony Den Protector Maddox. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Andy. How's it going? Get it? You're the Den Protector because you were watching my house and dog for because two Because I have Megamorph. <laughs> what would Megamorph... Yeah. You don't have Megamorph, I don't think. That's, I mean, well, that's what you think. If you turned into a big, beefy guy, I would say that was a megamorph. That was not a regular I mean, you would say, wow, he's been a tutu this whole time. (laughs) The numbers in Magic are so weird. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mechanically, they're perfect. Like, I feel like they chose the exact right range of numbers, but flavor is weird. A squirrel is just as good as a human soldier. I mean, that sounds about right. It's a magical squirrel. Or a little Like, you're not going to send a regular squirrel into battle. And then two squirrels can take down a bear. I, okay, I see what you're and saying. And everybody dies. I see what you're saying. And one mechanical owl can take down the most powerful being in the multiverse, you know? Assuming you have what six other things to Mer- sacrifice Merit to Lage? the Annihilator trigger. I was, I was thinking Emrakul. Oh, no, it's got to be Merit Lage. You think Merit Lage is, is more powerful than Emrakul? Yeah, it's the biggest printed power and toughness on any card, right? Well, it's not technically a card. It's token. <sighs> Do you think we're ever going to get a bigger, bigger than a 2020? Or rather, I should say, I think you and I both agree we will at some point. How long until you think we get something bigger than a 2020 in Black Water At Magic? this rate? Uh, actually, you know, I think probably next year is going to be a good year for it. Oh, oh, interesting. Mm. Not mm. 20, 2021. There you go. Anthony, you, uh, you watched my house so good. Everything is still together. I don't see any fires anywhere. I got to ask, did you? <laughs> I put out all the small fires. I have, two, I have two questions for you. First question is, did Sadie sleep in the bed with you or in her crate? Uh, half and half. She, she mixed up a little bit. Mm-hmm. The first night we came back, she refused to get into bed with us. <laughs> what? She just wouldn't. She stayed in her crate, and we like finally coaxed her out. And then I had to like close her crate door, and she just stood in front of her crate, staring at the door for like ten minutes. While Hillary and I were like, "Come on, huh. get in bed, get in bed." And she She's wouldn't. Getting do used it. to that crate life. Yeah, I don't know. She, she was like protesting. She was like, "You were gone for two weeks. Don't." I actually like you some like nights me. I slept in the crate, and she slept in the bed. It's a pretty big crate. You could fit in there. <laughs> Second question, did you see any evidence of mice? Uh, I saw no evidence of mice. I did see the, was it a groundhog? Oh, you saw the groundhog. I saw the groundhog. Very cool. Uh, I saw the rabbits and no mice. Good. I'm glad. Okay, great. No more questions. (laughs) Great. Should we talk about Magic the Gathering? I guess we should probably talk about Magic the Gathering. That's why everyone tunes in for for this show. 
tonight we're talking about your updates to your cube that you made recently and then I, I have not been updating my cube diligently i have to admit because of because of the rona and because of my other magic project i have going on just you know i'm letting my, my updates sort of linger but uh but you've been hard at work updating your cube and also writing a new and improved description and so we're going to talk a little bit about that and how you're processing those things about your cube and then i think that'll lead into a little bit of a conversation about complexity pros cons types what have you etc so stay tuned for that. But first, we are going to do our listener-submitted pack one, pick one. And the listener that submitted this cube is listener Verilin. I should ask how to pronounce this. Verilin? Verilin? Oh, boy. hope I get that right. And, uh, and Verilin says that this is an unpowered cube that they have continued to decrease in power level as their group finds it more fun to do less broken combo-y stuff. And, uh, yeah, there's more cute archetypes they can fit in, which I feel like is, you know, your cube is also aiming for a lower power level, so... We can look at this pack and see if we uh, we can see that lower power level kind of creeping in from the sort of typical unpowered list. We both have a pack in front of us, and again, if you want to play along at home, I will just read all the cards in the pack now, and then while I'm doing that, Anthony, why don't you pick whatever ones are in contention for you for our pack one, pick one. The pack is as follows. Thragtust, Dream Eater, Liliana Death's Majesty, Mana Confluence, Treasure Cruise, Thieving Skydiver, Inquisition of Kozilek, Recurring Nightmare, Duress, Agonizing Remorse, Bolus of Citadel, Sacred Foundry, Thought Seize, Bloodgast, and Breeding Pool, rounding out the pack. So, Anthony, what are you, what's, what's, what's piquing your interest here? So, nothing in this pack stands out as like super broken, must be picked kind of, kind of card. Uh, so, if I'm totally honest, if I was sitting down at a table to draft this, I would just be between Recurring Nightmare and Bolus of Citadel. These are just two incredible build rounds that are a ton of fun to play around. And tonight, I don't feel like being a spike. All right, fair enough. Everybody comes to the table with their own things. We should say that, you know, I see a lot of cards I would consider, like, the usual suspects of an Unpowered Cube here, but then I do see some other cards kind of kind of creeping in. You know, Dream Eater is a card that I feel like I don't see in many Unpowered Cubes, so that could be an example of some of these lower power level things that Very Lynn is talking about. We have the new card Thieving Skydiver in here from Zendikar Rising, which is of course exciting. And you know, Bolus of Citadel, you know Anthony, is one of my one of my pet cards. I don't actually think it's very good in cube. I appreciate when people have powered cubes and they like tinker it out and use it as a storm enabler. Like that's cool, but ultimately I don't think it's it's very good per se. Yeah, so you're not feeling very spiky. I am feeling spiky, and I'm looking at Mana Confluence primarily, and then Thoughtseize is the next card in contention for me from this pack, with a little bit of a with a little bit of a shout out to Treasure Cruise for being broken. Treasure Cruise is probably the most broken. It's also notable that in this pack we have Agonizing Remorse, Inquisition of Kozilek, and Thoughtseize and Duress. Like there is a lot of hand hate in this in this particular pack. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, you know, we talk a lot about how I am not going to care about what I am passing when I am first picking a card, but. I would be lying if I said that I was happy to be passing all of this good hand hate and probably not getting any of it back. Maybe I'll get Agonizing Remorse back around on the wheel, but I would not expect to table Duress or Inquisition out of this pack, which means that, you know, I'm just not going to get those cards. I don't care that I'm putting people on my left into black. What I care about is knowing for a fact I'm never going to be able to draft Inquisition and Duress for this deck as well, which is a bit of a bummer. But I agree with you. There's nothing that is head and shoulders outstanding in this pack and so i think a diligent pick is just take mana confluence stay open and uh and go on from there i'm taking recurring nightmare recurring nightmare is, is one of these cards that uh it is i think very fun does it 
does it irk you that part of why recurring nightmare is good is because of I mean it's not a, it's not a rules loophole but like it, it sometimes works counterintuitively to help people think which is that activating the ability of recurring nightmare re- part of the cost is returning recurring nightmare to your hand which means that if you always play recurring nightmare and immediately activate it your opponent never gets priority in order to you know disenchant your recurring nightmare and it just you know is insusceptible to any kind of you know board interaction they have to counter it or something or you know exile your graveyard so you have no targets on its way down does that does it irk you that that's part of why it's good yes and no i mean as a player like i love geeking out about rules interactions um and always like whenever there's an interesting activated ability looking at what's on what side of the colon and what does that mean about how you can actually use the card is always kind of an exciting part about discovering cards as a cube designer, I definitely do try and avoid things like that that just work in counterintuitive ways when it's not actually doing something interesting. Obviously, they would never print this card today, uh, but I, I a think lot of that, like, <laughs> it, it just wouldn't be that powerful, honestly, if, if it didn't have that uh, level of protection. What's the card that is kind of like a fixed version of this? I can see the art in my head so perfectly. Is it Hell's Caretaker? I, I forget which one was trying to fit, fix the other. No, there's, a, there's an enchantment, an actual aura... I think actually Recurring Nightmare was, was printed to fix Hell's Caretaker, which is laughable, but that was the idea, I think, when it was printed. I believe it has the word Di- Diabolic Servitude. Is that it? That sounds, that's definitely a Diabolic Servitude. Spell. Diabolic Servitude is kind of, I believe, I, don't, I, I can't verify this. I have not heard you know, Mark Rosewater say this, but it works in a very similar way to Recurring Nightmare, but it costs a little more mana, and it does leave the opportunity for the Diabolic Servitude to be removed, but it still lets you just kind of endlessly cycle two things back and forth if that's what you want to do i i actually you know sometimes i don't know which rules interactions are going to irk you and which ones aren't and this will kind of maybe lead into our conversation nicely because you know that is a complexity of recurring nightmare like it, it behaves in this weird unintuitive way that you might not get if you're a new player you might just think oh well, i'll disenchant that thing and you oh actually you can't let me explain why you know this is part of the activation of the ability but you're into things like the the sort of you know oblivion ring loophole with your with your banisher priest variants where if you you know do something to the creature sacrifice it bounce it in response to the first trigger then you know that figure just resolves and stays resolved and they don't ever get the thing back how do you like what what is your what is your framework for what what are the rules that you're okay having be weird and unintuitive for new players and what are the ones that you consider to be a, a nuisance i mean they're they're totally different kinds of complexity like if you look at uh Oblivion Ring versus uh, Banishing Light, they both read pretty similarly. Uh, And if you're a new player, you're reading the card for the first time, I think you're going to grok what they both do pretty easily. But I think uh, the complexity that Oblivion Ring offers is something that you kind of have to like learn about and discover. And it offers a lot of strategic complexity to someone who's more enfranchised and has played with the card before. So it just offers you a lot more nuance and different, different lines you can take in a game. So I really like pushing that kind of complexity where there is a lot of depth to explore, but trying to reduce a lot of that comprehension complexity that makes cards harder to read and understand. Yeah, I guess Recurring Nightmare, I often see players that are, not often, but I have seen players that are not experienced with the card just play it out on three to be mana efficient and then not have something to do with it immediately and get disenchanted or whatever because they didn't realize that if their opponent had a disenchant, they could use it in a way that that wouldn't potentially answer it. I think you're right that the recurring nightmare rules interaction basically necessitates that you always play it the same way. (laughs) You have to do it this way, and if you don't know that, you're just kind of punished. Meanwhile, the Oblivion Ring thing, you know, as you you pointed out, it plays normally, you know, it plays the same way as a Banishing Light does, unless you have this extra sort of thing you can be aware of. I still feel like sometimes the outcome of that is a new player feels a little bit, like, cheated. (laughs) Like, 
really that's how that works which is yeah. which is maybe yeah. not ideal that's totally true i mean you can you can come out uh, of both sides of the interaction when you see like oh wow that's how it works that's so cool i look forward to doing that next time or just like i actually did not understand the rules and so i felt like I made a mistake. And I think in the case of Recurring Nightmare, if you say, well, I disenchanted response, you're actually giving up game equity. And so I think that's an opportunity for a pretty bad, pretty bad sort of game experience. All right. Anyway, this pack, I'm going to take Mana Confluence and try and spike it. And Anthony, you're going to take Recurring Nightmare to have a good time with your friends and explain how activated abilities work to newer players. (laughs) Magic is a great game. I hope there's some spicy targets in this cube for it. And we're going to find out. In this pack, we have Thragtus and Dream Eater. That's not a bad start. I just want a Chupacabra and a Gravedigger. You sick freak. Did I say Grave, grave Digger? I meant Grave Titan. <laughs> hey, think, now we're there. Think bigger. <laughs> think bigger, baby. Anyway, thank you, Verilin, for sending in this cube. I am very sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. I usually think to ask people how to pronounce their name if I don't know how to pronounce it, but for some reason I looked at this when I recorded it in the spreadsheet and thought, yeah, sure, I know how to pronounce that, and I totally don't. So hope I'm not getting that wrong. If you want to have your cube featured on Lucky Paper Radio... You can email us at mail at luckypaper.co and send us your name, however you want to be credited, your cube link, your pronouns. You know what? Throw a little pronunciation guide in there for your name for me, too, just so I don't get it wrong. That would be great. And uh, we'll feature your cube on the show sometime, too, and use that as a beautiful segue to talk about topics related to Magic the Gathering. And tonight, Anthony, we're talking about complexity. I did that so smoothly, I'm not going to have a place to put it in our little music stinger. I'll just put it right here. All right, now we're talking about complexity. We did it. Do you want to start talking about complexity? Or do you want to start kind of running down your latest update to your cube and cube description? Where, where, where do you want to go with this? We could talk a little bit about my cube. I don't know how, how much it actually ties in. Uh, it's just one of the things that I emphasized in the brand new description of my cube. But a realization that I've been having is a lot of the struggle I have with my cube is that it's just a little bit not necessarily what people expect or are excited about. It's not a, a powered cube where you're going to see all of your favorite, most powerful cards from the history of Magic. It's really more of just like I've been trying to design my own limited format. So the power level is more closer to a standard or, a, a, sorry, a premier draft set than it is uh, a legacy cube. So yeah, I, I think that that's the biggest change I've been making in the way that I think about it and the way that I talk about it is just trying to reframe it in that sense where it's just a, a good, deep, complex, limited format, not necessarily a broken, powered cube. I feel like a big part of limited is having like kind of junky cards in your pool like like you you know we talk about sort of the the limited resources scale you and i know our big listeners limited resources and they always rate all the cards in their set reviews on a scale from f to a with most of the cards falling in the c range like fine playables but nothing exciting the b's and a's are the better cards that are going to pull you into those colors and then the d's and below are cards you really don't want to be playing but really most deck ends up with some number of d's and whatnot i feel like your cube can't really be that close to limited without having that kind of power disparity and having like you know a bunch of kind of cards you would otherwise maybe not be thrilled about playing and a few like exciting bombs to like pull you in a certain direction is that something you thought about when you were trying to make your cube feel like limited or is it really focused on the gameplay that's definitely something i've thought a lot about and i don't think getting exactly that kind of like distribution of power level is really practical, at least in the size of cube. Just Not unless you because... want to seed packs, which is, a, which is a lot of work, I think. 
Right. Either seed packs or just make the cube tremendous. Because it's not just about the disparity of power level, but it's also about uh, sort of the, the distribution, like if you think about a curve of power level. So in a premier draft set, you have just a very few cards that are extremely powerful, and then a couple things in the B range, and then most things are kind of a C. So you end up being in this place where it's still like strategically optimal to uh, stick with a two-color deck. Hopefully you get a bomb or two and you're in good shape. If we take the sort of more compressed curve of a cube, where it's maybe rather than a curve, it's a little bit more of a, a linear from top to bottom, where, you know, the bulk of cards are in the middle and there's a few outliers on either end, there are still just so many more overpowered cards that drafting just only the powerful cards in five colors becomes this, like, really uh, overwhelming strategy. Right, unless you included, like, and your cube is a little bigger than 360 by design because you want it sure. to be easier to add and remove cards, but you could think about including, you know, 24, or maybe in your case, like, 30 very powerful cards, and then, of course, the only downside is that not everyone's going to get one, some people are going to get three in their packs, people are going to get none, but you could theoretically, like, there's nothing saying you couldn't run the hypergeometric math and try and figure out how to get powerful cards equal to the number of rares in a regular limited pack on the whole, on the full distribution of a draft. Definitely. But I think that the problem with trying to apply that exactly to cube is either just like the bulk of the cards are going to be extremely boring, or because you're seeing in a 360 cube, the exact same like seven bombs that you see every time, it would just be extremely repetitive. Like it's important to regular limited magic that there are incredible bombs that maybe somebody will just get a 3-0 off the back of one powerful card, but you're only going to see that come up every once in a while because it's not going to appear in every every draft. Yeah, so what I would I'm say talking too about... that even if we were talking about trying to emulate that sort of feeling of there are rares and mythics that are you're much less likely to see, but sometimes are way more powerful. Still, I think it would be good to avoid the true like limited hyper bombs like Tetsamok or Glorybringer, these cards that actually are kind of unbeatable in their in their respective formats. There's there's a there's a there's a scale there you could of course kind of toe that line. Yeah. So when I talk about trying to emulate, you know, what I love about Limited, it's more about sort of the, the actual gameplay um, and combat matters, your creatures matter, li- uh, removal is a fairly scarce resource, figuring out when is the right time to use it and how to get how you can extract the most value out of instant speed removal. Like, these are the kinds of decisions that I really enjoy about the game uh, and really want to support those. In a recent episode of Constructed Resources, which I actually have started listening to, even though I don't play Constructed, just because I Weird. think... Well, I think it's interesting. I don't I don't listen to all the episodes. Some of the episodes are all about like a specific meta, which honestly I can even probably learn something from that. But as I've gone deeper in cube design and I'm doing it for more and more years, I feel like I look more and more to constructed to learn about how decks work and how cards work and how card interactions can be put together to try and inform my cube design experience. And so that's why I listen to constructed resources. And on a recent episode or maybe a while back, they were basically saying that the main difference between constructed gameplay and Limited gameplay is that limited gameplay, like every board state, is kind of a novel experience, right? Because your opponent's deck is, you know, there's a range of what it could possibly be, but that range is pretty broad, you know, depending on how the packs broke down at the table, how the rest of the players were drafting, just how lucky or unlucky they got. Like, they could have a lot of different cards in their pool in a lot of different quantities. You know, you could have eight, seven dwarves. That's possible in a limited draft, which, of course, is not, not possible in a constructed format. So they were saying, you know, every... Uh, it's actually not possible in limited. You are not allowed to play more than seven, seven dwarves. That is true. The flavor judge will ban you from the DC. No, no, no. Life. The rules judge. Oh, you actually you actually can only play seven, can't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, wait, but is that... The, the four of rule doesn't hold apply, but seven, seven dwarves says specifically you can have seven of them. 
One second here. Hold on a second. So you're saying this card specifically? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. It's 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 unlike uh, you know. I picked the rats. worst possible example. <laughs> this is ridiculous. So you literally can't play eight seven dwarves, can you? Give me a sec. No. The ability seven. It doesn't let you ignore form of legality. For example, you you can't you can't add seven dwarves from your personal collection. Yeah, yeah, duh, obviously. If you're fortunate enough to open or draft eight or more seven dwarves in an event, you can include only seven in your deck. Wow. Wow. Amazing. That is shocking to me. Well, I picked a horrible example. They could have eight Rimrock Knights in their deck, and you're going to lose that draft, friend. You're going to lose that match against the person that has eight Rimrock Knights. But in Constructed, they were basically saying that, you know, in Limited, every single board state is a novel evaluation. What are the cards in my hand? Here's the sort of big range of cards my opponent could have, this bell curve I'm imagining, and make a decision in that sort of context. And in a constructed game, it's not like that. It's about kind of learning the meta, learning the possible board states you're going to run up against and getting in sort of practice with these things. And, you know, obviously, like, the, every board state is still somewhat unique, but it's easier to, you know, practice and understand sort of the center of that bell curve in constructed than it is in limited. Limited, you really can't do that because it could be anything. And I've heard before people say that cube is somewhere between constructed and limited, and... I've never really bought that. I always just felt like they were saying it's limited, but it's powerful. Therefore it's like constructed. But the more I thought about it, the more I kind of came around to the idea that because you are drafting from a limited pool and you know, once your play group knows those cards, it is kind of like knowing a constructed format and you can actually begin to understand what the possible answers your opponent might have are. And with, with greater clarity and certainty than you ever could in a limited environment against a sort of an unknown opponent. Anyway, that's why I feel like I learned things from Constructed for my cube as well, because I actually do think that the gameplay is somewhere in between Limited and Constructed. That's fair. I mean, but that metagame also exists in Limited to a, a reasonable degree. Like, sure, you don't know how many of a particular common your opponent can have, but you still can develop heuristics about, like, how kinds of board states typically play out in a format. Yeah, and that's kind of all that being good at magic is, right? Is developing some set of ideas for how you process a board state and what you should do in certain situations and then learning when to apply them and when not to apply them. I don't know. I, I, I don't think I worded that very well. No, I, I see your point. The thing that I take away from that, though, is just that, like, yeah, that's why I like Limited. I, I'm much more interested in uh, evaluating novel board states and novel positions in a draft than I am in just learning about a metagame. Um, and that's really just what I want to push with my own cube. How do you think the strategic decisions differ in Constructed and Limited? Do you think Constructed is because of that novelty offering a greater degree of challenge and like puzzle and problem solving? Or do you think because of that novelty, you are kind of a little more adrift with every decision and there's less for you to like ground yourself in. And so there are, there's actually less sort of strategy going into each decision or do you think it's kind of a wash? I don't feel super comfortable speaking to it just because I'm much more familiar with limited than constructed. But I think that Going into a constructed game, you have a much bigger expectation about my deck is the aggro deck. This is what I need to go right for me in order to win this game. Uh, whereas in limited, it's much more about evaluating it sort of from scratch, more or less, every turn. And, and these sort of moments where you realize, oh, well, I was on defense for a couple turns, but actually, because I just drew this, I know that I can start moving to an uh, offensive position and can make this attack here. Those are, to me, the really exciting moments, so... I, I don't see that happening as much as in Constructed. You mentioned in your sort of update that you you did sort of make a mention to the 
deck speeds of aggro, mid-range, and control, and things you being that you're specifically trying to support in this environment. And I'm curious to know, like, how do you define the aggro deck in your cube? Is it purely a matter of just how fast it can, you know, deal 20 damage? Like, what is what is sort of the 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 bar, the metric? I mean, I think it's it's less concrete than in some higher powered cubes, like. In the highest power, it's literally like you just put in your chunk of, uh, you know, these these dozen cards that are just two mana or one mana, two ones. And the point is you just cast them as quickly as possible and get your opponent dead before they can get their feet under them at all. And a lot of cube designers will say, like, well, if you're not doing that, you do not support aggro. Like, that's the only thing aggro means. But, like, again, if you play hey, limited... those people should shut up. <laughs> <laughs> those people are describing a thing. There is another thing that is also valid, which is what aggressive decks look like in standard limited sets. And I think it's less about just this, like, all-in, I have to get in under you being able to do anything or, or, or that's it. Um, and more just about being able to pressure your opponent early enough that they are, you know, not able to get value out of their cards, then also those decks being able to generate reach through, you know, evasive threats or direct damage, other ways to actually just be able to close out the game from that position of having an early advantage. Is that a fair description? I think so, but I've heard people say that, you know, Constructed obviously has all these... and. You know, these things are not set in stone. Some people say aggro mid-range and control. Some people say that combo is the sort of fourth corner of this, and it's actually four major archetypes. And, you know, Patrick Chapin has a whole book that describes the 16 major archetypes of magic. There's all kinds of ways to cut this up and try and understand it. But I have heard a lot of people basically describe that, you know, constructed, you have these archetypes, you have aggro, you have control. And then in limited, you really don't ever have that. It's all just flavors of mid-range, right? And that was kind of mirrored in what you described a moment ago where you said... Instead of sitting down with like my game plan and knowing what my deck aims to do from the beginning, I am going to basically be adapting with each you know each change to the board and each sort of decision and play made in the game and try and decide am I the aggressor am I on the defense. It sounds to me like some of your goals would align with a like pure mid range cube, and yet you're still trying to support these like aggro and control. Why is that? Sure. I mean, well, the problem with saying everyone is exactly mid-range is that if everyone is mid-range, suddenly just being a little bit slower than the median deck becomes the optimal strategy. And it just sort of goes down this rabbit hole of just like everybody's slowing down their deck and then it just everything kind of gets mushy and people are just putting whatever the most powerful, like whatever the biggest source of card advantage are. Um, Do you feel that way in normal limited? I don't, but again, I think it comes back to that power level curve. Because most of your cards are just going to be these, like, Cs that are fine, you just don't have the opportunity to, like, assemble enough of those card advantage generating cards as as you need to be able to uh, support that strategy. And and legitimately, aggressive aggressive uh, strategies are often totally effective in, in limited sets. Yeah, that does vary set to set, though, right? Like, you know, yeah. you think about something like Amonkhet had a very good aggressive deck, Guilds of Ravnica had a very good, very good aggressive deck, but, you know, I think about sets like Dominaria. Like, Dominaria, to my reckoning, didn't have anything I would call an aggressive deck, and and that was a set I... It's probably still my favorite set that I have drafted extensively. Do you have, do you have a favorite li- actual, like, limited set that you've drafted a bunch? Dominaria is definitely up there. I think I would also put Modern Horizons very close, and actually, Hour of Devastation was a really good one. And, and to be honest, those are like slower formats where you can do more stuff. Like it's, which sounds like against what I'm saying, but I think that if I compare my cube to uh, limited sets, it's still slower than you know some of those uh, really really aggressive formats. But I think that having the like the fun police there is really important, just to having a balanced metagame that actually functions. So I do want to foster like 
card advantage is important. You need to get it. You want to try and get all these cool things working. But I don't want to have a, a an environment either where it's just like, well, you have to be aggro. Like only these like couple commons matter. Uh, and if you don't draft them, all these like cool things that sort of invite you to to build around them don't really work. I guess the black white knights deck in Dominaria was pretty aggressive. It was sort of aggressive, but I mean the other the other piece to that is the card advantage part. So even if you're not, you know, being kept in check by the fun police, that's the extremely aggressive deck. If you also just don't have easy access to tremendous card advantage, you're still going to need to draft a somewhat focused deck just to be able to actually cast your cards. This is something you mentioned in your description of your cube that hit me in a, in a weird way. You mentioned that, like, you know, it's drafted like normal limited. You should try and prioritize, you know, fixing and good creatures and card advantage. Do you... I actually don't think I've ever heard somebody describe a sort of philosophy of limited, you know, where card advantage was a core pillar of something to to consider. Is that, isn't that the wait? Isn't that the whole thing? What do I mean, the I whole thought thing? that was like the only thing about how to be good at magic was <laughs> to think about card advantage. Well, like you know, basically, like you know, if, if you're talking about a normal limited set and you look at the cards that get A's and B's from limited resources, it's always huge bombs, which can be a bomb in any variety mm-hmm. of axes including card advantage some of them are card advantage bombs but it's just like some rare mythic or sometimes an uncommon mythic uncommon that's just like totally messed up and then it's removal it's you know efficient removal in all the colors and removal spells are basically always the best commons in any limited set with rare exception would you agree with that that's true well and and what i don't ever hear is i don't ever see divination is never the best card Right. What I'm saying is I don't ever see that, like, you should compare just, you know, a, a pure divination or, you know, some some elvish visionary, some dinky creature that draws a card and, like, count that as something that is as good as removal or as good as the, the biggest bombs. I don't know. It, it feels to me like that is a thing that some decks care about in Normal Limited, but not all decks. That's true. I mean, but that's such an interesting part about the game is this tension between tempo and card advantage. And divination ends up being pretty bad in a lot of formats because you just can't afford that tempo loss. But instant speed removal is always way, way better than sorcery speed removal because it has that opportunity to get card advantage. So even though you might not be prioritizing, you know, cards that strictly say draw a bunch of cards... The things that actually end up deciding games of limited are who can, you know, effectively leverage their cards to generate the most card advantage. So when I say that, I don't just mean cards that say draw two cards. I also mean things that you can repeatedly generate tokens or use as instant speed removal to foil. Yeah, exactly. And talk me through real quick just how an instant speed removal spell can be kind of pseudo or, you know, virtual card advantage. Well, if we make a cool format where combat tricks are good and your opponent casts a combat trick to save their cool creature and you destroy it, they lose two cards. If we make a cool format where combat tricks are good. <laughs> I mean, but that's that's Sicko. like part of what makes limited fun. Like I know it feels bad when it's happening to you, but the fact that you can like try and read what your opponent is doing and assess they have a combat trick and navigate a turn where you're able to to leverage that information to generate card advantage, like that is to me the sweetest part about the game. Yeah. I think actually part of the reason, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we don't see a lot of combat tricks in most cubes. And I mean, first of all, if you're just playing a power optimized cube, then basically no combat tricks will ever make the cut because what a combat trick is most of the time is a kind of removal spell you have to play in a way to get value off of. It has some fringe benefits. And, you know, if if there's enough efficient removal running around, you don't need them as, as much as you do in normal limited sets. You're kind of often leaning on combat tricks as a sort of interaction when you lack other efficient removal in a regular limited deck. But the other reason I think might be that 
because there isn't that additional variance of opening packs and that much wider bell curve of what the decks could possibly look like, I think playing around or learning to play around with the combat tricks in a cube would get very tiresome very quickly if you drafted it a bunch and there was sort of a, a set of predictable combat tricks that you just, you know, there's exactly one of, there's never two of. I you know I've played around that one for my opponent and now I don't have to worry about it anymore. It becomes this weird kind of metagame maybe. That's possible. I, I mean, again, I, I think that that interaction works in, in Limited, so I, I think it can work in Cube as well. If anything, the opposite feels like the case to me, where there's just too many different combat tricks. So you, you know, if they have two mana up, it could be any one of a number of different things. Right. But it's still a challenging decision to make. Something this makes me think about is how hamstrung normal cube design is by the assumption and the sort of history of cube being in paper. We've been playing more and more digitally lately, obviously, because there is no alternative thanks to a global pandemic that has been badly bungled by the United States government. So playing online a bunch makes me think a lot about all of the potential opportunities for cube design where you could, for example, say, let's seed packs this way, or let's take a pool of you know, 80 cards that I've picked as like power standouts and at random include a quarter of those in the cube with every draft. So you actually can start to get some of that variance that you get in regular limited. And then you're getting much closer to designing, obviously, an actual limited set. You could design it by your own sort of, your own sort of rules and limitations. You wouldn't have to stick to, you know, one rare mythic, you know, three uncommons. You could sort of construct the packs however you wanted. But there's so much unexplored territory in that kind of cube design that we're all just kind of stuck assuming, well... We're going to have a singleton pile of cards, mostly singleton, and we're going to make packs from it and just kind of draft it like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, there's a lot of interesting space there. Uh, I will say, I think that, you know, if we want to just talk about adjusting the, the as fan, which I think is a terrible word, but basically just saying, like, what is the, um, the actual frequency that you see a certain kind of effect in a pack? Yeah, Anthony, well, as you fan the pack, how many as do you, you see? As you fan the pack. It's a <laughs> so, you know, you could thing. say, like, well, in this set, there's, you know, one rare that does this effect, and there's one common. Uh, you're going to see the common a whole lot more. Whereas in cube, everything kind of has this as fan of one. Like, it's all equal. But even within that, like, because you're playing Sorry, with Sorry, not cards, to interrupt you, but nothing in cube has an as fan of one. Not even close. Because it's one uh, what's, across what's, all of the packs the of way? the entire set. It would be, like, as fan of 124th in a 360 card cube. Sure, they all have the same number. It doesn't matter what the number is. This is it's my very this is my level of competency at math. But even within that, I think you can still just balance how often you see certain effects to a large degree. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I could. There is a lot of space there, but there is all like in that sort of bigger world of uh, types of cube design and how you distribute packs. But there's also just a ton of space in a three sixty singleton cube that I don't feel exhausted to the point of needing to try something bigger. Personally. There is, but but it's just like, you know, I think of Eldraine Limited, and there was a mill archetype that could come together in most drafts, but was, I think, especially effective if you got something like Folio of Fancies. And we can just pretend for a minute maybe that mill wasn't so viable as a baseline, but you can imagine a format where if you open a Folio of Fancies, you can make a mill deck, and otherwise you can't really, or, you know, it's kind of, you know, loosely supported. And it would be very cool to have a cube where one in every eight drafts someone open a Folio of Fancies instead of every single draft or most drafts because you only have, you know, 50 extra cards above sort of the number you need to draft with eight people. But when you start doing that under normal cube assumptions, you talk about building a cube that's, you know, hundreds or thousands of cards that is really huge. And then obviously you have to break singleton and it gets kind of a huge mess. I, I'm just I'm just saying I think there's a lot of unexplored space for cubes that are built 
in ways that are not just here's a list, take 15 cards at random and make a pack, and instead they're constructed in some weird way, which is not really pertinent to this conversation at all. But it made me think of that when we were talking about that fact. And the fact that we're just all playing online so much, it just feels like a lot of untapped potential. I know you want to talk a little bit about complexity. Maybe we can start just by having you, we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but just kind of run down how you think about complexity as it relates to a your cube what what you limit what you don't limit etc so this came up a lot when we were talking about uh the double face cards in in different places where where basically i feel like they're just they introduce a very specific kind of complexity which is just that it's a lot of, it's some hard of the to text understand is on the back <laughs> yeah some of the text is literally not there so they're just really hard to understand and when i say really hard obviously everything is relative let's just just take me up by word there for a second. So I really appreciate uh, everything that Mark Rosewater does. But one of the speci- All right, well, pretty, I'm taking a note here. Uh, pretty much, yeah. I don't know you're if gonna, I... You're going to get some letters about the latest secret layer, Anthony. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to defend Mark Rosewater here till the end. Um, All right. So one of the wonderful things that he talks about is that there are actually a bunch of different kinds of complexity in Magic. One of them is this comprehension complexity, that when you read a card, how difficult is it just to understand what does the card actually do? Beyond that, there's board complexity. So what impact does the card have on the game? Like how much state tracking is there? How much effort do you need to take to understand what is actually happening in the current game, given you understand what the cards do? And lastly, lastly, strategic complexity, which is how many different ways or like what what are the hidden options that you can use a card? And I think the fact that these are all opening up, uh, you know, a lot of different points of decision making, but don't present in the same way is really important to understand. So Magic is a game that is fundamentally extremely complicated. And I think it is fun because it's complicated, because all that complexity just adds up to more and more places where you can make decisions that hopefully you feel like can matter and are fun to make. Tic-Tac-Toe is not a fun game because you don't get to make decisions that matter. Um, Unless you're a baby. Unless you're a baby. But the fact that not all these sources of complexity are equal is really important. So for a new player that hasn't necessarily uh, seen and read and understood all these cards, coming to a set of cards and not encountering a bunch of comprehension complexity is a huge asset because the game will just make sense to them. They know what they can do. Yeah, that one strikes me as basically strictly a negative. Is there any situation where you can defend comprehension complexity? Well, I think you can because I think honestly a lot of... What is enjoyable is for players to come to a system and say, like, well, I, I know how this works. Like, I, I feel comfortable and superior. And I, I don't think that's entirely a negative. Like, having that inside knowledge is satisfying. I guess you could also just see it as a resource to be used. Like, you're not aiming for any kind of comprehension complexity, but in the service of other goals, you will naturally create comprehension complexity, and therefore it is a thing you have to ration and use strategically and use it on the things you really want that are interesting and not wasted on you know, some boring card that doesn't actually do anything fundamentally cool. Exactly. Yeah, so I mean, that's the big part is that making decisions is what makes it a game. But if those decisions don't matter, then you didn't actually really make any decisions. You were just sort of playing through a process. So Look at you, Tic-Tac-Toe. We're just dragging <laughs> Tic-Tac-Toe so hard this episode. For those of you that still love to play Tic-Tac-Toe. You do get to choose where you put your stupid little mark, but it doesn't actually matter doesn't in the grand matter. scheme of things. So, yeah, if, if we, like, think of it in the most, like, uh, simplified way, like, we have so much complexity points that we're going to allocate that 
our users just won't tolerate anymore. And we just want to allocate that complexity to things that offer depth and interesting lines of play and meaningful decisions, not to what the fuck does this card do? And for me, like the, the double-faced lands that are one color on, on each side are actually not that like different from, I mean, really they're no different from a fetch land in a, in a environment that's only playing basics, but they just read in such a more complicated way without being fundamentally different mechanically that I'm just much less interested in, in including those unless it was like a major theme where I was leveraging that uh, double face cardness to, to either get people interested or just have some consistency throughout the cube that people would become comfortable with. Well, they don't give you a shuffle, and they don't give you cards to delve away out of your graveyard, so I'm not really buying this whole fetch land comparison. That's a great point. I mean, but all those details are other things that just lead to a lot more depth in the fetch lands, because yeah. even though it does the same thing, as a player that understands how to play Brainstorm in a fetch land, there's a strategic complexity to, to how they actually play. Those also have comprehension complexity for people that... I, I, I helped Hillary sort of... <laughs> Josh is parting with some magic cards because he's, you know, not playing with anybody in Oklahoma and has kind of moved on a little bit. So Hillary upgraded the mana base in her EDH deck and we talked through fetch lands and it took me a little while to get sort of the point through that like, look, this can get a swamp or a forest. And now you have all of these cards in your deck that are swamps and forests, but also... It can get a swamp and a forest, so it can get a mountain. Isn't that clear? And then I, why, then I had to explain how this Misty Rainforest can go in this deck, even though you're not allowed to play blue. I know half the card is blue. It's I know. very confusing. But, yes, there's a lot of comprehension complexity there. But it does unlock, like, I, I love fetch lands. I love them so much. They're such a beautiful part of the game to me. And it's because of all that strategic complexity that I like them. And it is definitely a cost in comprehension complexity because it is not friendly to a new player to understand that actually there are situations where you want to put an Arid Mesa in your Demir deck. And that, that can happen sometimes. Oh, are you kidding me? Like half my commander decks are monocolored and I put as many fetch lands as I can in them. Gotta set up that bowl of Citadel. That's also because Commander is mostly about sitting around and just touching your magic cards with your friends. So if you just <laughs> shuffle your deck a bunch because you had to fetch a bunch of lands, then it's just all the better for everybody, you know? Look at your deck. More card touching without feel bads. So I think it's important to mention that we're talking about the strategic complexity in a, in a, or sorry, the comprehension complexity in a way that probably sounds pretty extreme. Like uh, most of my players are going to get what a double-sided land does. It doesn't, it's not actually going to cause a problem to most people. I think on a, on an obvious point, like I do want my cube to be approachable to people who are less enfranchised magic players. Maybe they haven't seen a double face card before. So obviously for them, I want to make it as grokkable as possible. But I think it also affects even enfranchised players a lot more than you would expect. I'm thinking back specifically to the, the pack one pick one we did from the two-headed giant cube last week. And Andy, we just... I'm thinking back to how you were so dumb and stupid and kept picking the wrong <laughs> cards. And that's just because no, it's of not that. It's just, it's just It's because all of these cards were not things we were extremely familiar with and maybe did slightly different things in this context and trying to think through all of those decisions in, you know, the, the 30 seconds that we would have if we were actually taking a pick in a draft is ridiculous. Like we would have just overlooked half of that pack. And so I in my did actually well, where... Google to see if the, if the original surge mechanic did cite your teammate and it does. And the more I thought about it, why? <laughs> Why does it cite your teammate? Like, <laughs> I mean, they must have specifically thought about multiplayer formats. Was there? Were, were they also doing some other supplemental product that focused on maybe? That? Not that I can remember, but I feel like you know there are so many other mechanics that could cite your teammate, but don't because it. I don't know. It just it felt like a weird specific thing that only comes up in the most casual yeah. formats where you're not only playing multiplayer, but you're playing multiplayer where you are on a team with other people. 
I don't know. It was very strange. But anyway, Surge, OP in the two-headed Surge giant cube. Good. So yeah, I think it's just really important to reflect on the fact that being cognizant of that cognitive complexity and that comprehension complexity does benefit all of your users, all of your, sorry, thinking like a whatever designer, uh, all of your players, no matter what their skill level. And especially for me designing a cube where the cards are not as powerful, but they're still going to be unfamiliar to a lot of players. I want to make sure that when things are complicated, it's actually adding to the fun and not just like, oh, well, I skipped over that card in the draft because I didn't understand it or like it was too many words. I just literally didn't read it. And now I'm getting owned by it. That's never fun for anybody. Yeah, and as a, as a counterpoint, like, my cube, I don't really think about trying to limit comprehension complexity at all, except as a kind of, like, tiebreaker between two cards that do a very similar effect, but if one of them is more complicated than the other, I'll choose a simpler one whenever I can. And Totally. It also is a thing that will irk me, so, like, you know, I still have Falcon Gorger in my cube, which is the red 2-1 that says all other vampires in your hand gain madness and the madness cost is equal to their converted mana costs, which is this stupid giant text box that is basically never relevant. I'm not sure if I even have another vampire in my cube. I'm sure I do. Some other black creature. Knight um, of the Ebon Legion. There you go. There's one. I've never seen anybody madness a vampire. It'd be cool if they did, but that is a kind of card where if you are new to cube, if you're new to my cube, you're going to be like, oh, is there a vampire theme? What is this? I don't understand what's going on. Frankly, you're just not going to read the giant block of text on the red one drop, probably. And that just, that irks me. That's the thing I'm always looking to cut whenever I can. But it's still in there because it's still one of the best red one drops. So, I don't know. But, you know, I, I don't think I'm as far away from your from the way you're operating as it might sound. It's also just that I'm designing a cube at a much, much lower power level. Which means there's just a, a much broader base of cards that are viable. You have more opportunities to find a similar card that does not right. have the complexity. Whereas I'm a little bit more yeah. hamstrung by my power level to just play whatever. Exactly. So where I'm not faced with, I need to play literally every single one mana to one in order to make this uh, certain deck viable. Uh, I can say like, well, I want to play a three mana burn spell. There's 35 alternatives. I'm going to play the the four that actually make sense and read cleanly. So it's just a lot more flexibility, which is another advantage of uh, operating at lower power level. All right. On to board comprehension, Anthony. Do you think about board comprehension and board complexity when you are making cube decisions? That's the one that I think the least about. I certainly enjoy complicated board states personally, but there is a point that's that's really something that like doesn't come up until it does for in my in my experience. So definitely in the first iteration of my cube it was just like everything's a mess. Everybody's got a huge board. No one can figure out what's happening and no one is able to make good decisions because you're just like, well, I guess I just attack all because what's going on. So it's something I've tried to reduce a little bit, uh, but in general, uh, it's something I, it's obviously enjoyable. I think that, especially for enfranchised players, you can sustain a fairly high amount of it. So not too much of a concern for me. Interesting. I feel like in some ways, this is maybe the complexity that I think about the most in my cube. Okay. And it's not like I will not play a card because it will individually add to board complexity so like we can we can stick with red one drops i run soul scar mage which is a card that says if a source you control will deal damage non-combat damage to a creature an opponent controls it puts that many minus one minus one counters on that creature instead which is a very annoying piece of text when you're trying to manage a board and you have burn spells and there's other kinds of counters going on like that's the kind of card that you would exclude if board complexity was a primary concern of yours if you were talking about it on a card level but I actually don't think about it on a card level. I think this amount of complexity is better reflected in the overall design goals of my cube. And as you said, I also like 
analyzing a complicated board to a point. There is a point where that board is too complicated and it no longer becomes fun because you no longer feel like you can figure out the puzzle if you think hard enough. You just feel like I either have to sit here and you know do accounting for 45 minutes to decide how I attack or I just don't attack or I just say Mathis or blockers and throw everything in there and just let them figure it out. And there is a point where you just kind of shut down. And I think everybody's at a different level on that. Everybody has a different tolerance for that kind of shutdown level. But a big reason why I like to run so much removal and why I like to keep aggro good in my cube is because I want to avoid those kinds of stalls that are the result of people shutting down on board complexity. Because magic, the way that it is designed, it fundamentally benefits the defensive player a lot. If you're attacking, you just get to decide whether you attack or not, and the defending player gets to a, decide how they're going to block, which gives them more choices in how combat actually plays out. And B, gets last priority to use any kind of combat tricks or things to change how combat plays, which is a big advantage if you're the defending player. And so as soon as you're in like a board state that's kind of equal, uh, you can very quickly get to a stall where like both players have a good board, but not good enough to overcome that natural advantage of the defending player and to actually throw any creatures into attack. And so... It's not that individual cards are excluded from my cube because they add to board complexity. It's that I have 60 removal spells because I want the board to stay relatively clear and clean so that the decisions are never getting to that point where you're getting so muddy and sort of lost in the options. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really good point, too, that it has more to do with the composition of the cube overall than specific cards. And, and the fact that just, like, removal takes care of a lot of that. Where this, like you said, gets really problematic is where it's just like, well, I've got a Bitter Blossom and a Cathar's Crusade in play, and so I'm just going to have to do, not even like make decisions that don't matter, but just like perform accounting activities that don't matter. Obligatory the only actions. thing that matters is like, do you draw, do I draw a burn spell before I end up killing myself with this Bitter Blossom and the whole game just turns into doing all of that. Yeah, I have so, an yeah, EDH deck that is notorious for having a lot of accounting that must be done, which sometimes oh, you really? want to do that. Sometimes it's in, fun. In EDH? You've played against it. Oh, I see. You're, you're, doing a little, <laughs> you're doing a little joke here. I love accounting the format. You're hamming it up a bit. I mean, that is, I think, a big part of what people are drawn to EDH for. They get to, they get to actually do that stuff. We're in a game of limited. They get killed before they get to resolve their Cathar's Crusade and their Bitter Blossom and get up to I've 40. I've played Cathar's Crusade for years. And then I then I stopped <laughs> because you got tired of doing all the math. <laughs> yeah, we had a game. We had a game at Josh's house because Josh is a bit of a chaos muppet. He's a friend of ours. He's a magic player, and uh, he broke out some EDH decks he hasn't touched in years and didn't actually remember what they did. And we got <laughs> we, we got to a place where I was I was going off with my Jeskai Ascendancy deck, but Josh had the. Um, not knowledge pool. The one that lets you just every time anybody casts a non-creature spell or it's a sorcery, everyone at the table copies that spell. Whatever that one's Hi- called. Hive mind. Hive mind. Thank you. He had hive mind in play as I was going off with like all of my cantrips and little like dinky spells and everyone was copying them and it was it was a true nightmare to resolve every one of those stacks. And that's you know some people really like that and I like that sometimes, but. It's not what yeah. my cube is aiming to do, and so that I mean, is, that is my sort of approach to, to board complexity. It's funny. I would never have... I think this is a part of how like contextualization and framing can change how you think about something. I would never have considered board complexity to be a concern of mine until you framed what board complexity was, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a thing that I 
really want to avoid because I don't want to get to that point where people are paralyzed by indecision because there are too many things that could get them and they'll just feel like an idiot if they miss that onboard trick, you know? Right. It's, it's, it's important. I appreciate that reflection on that moment that, uh, all of these things are not good or bad. They are just worth reflecting on. Uh, I also, my, my peak commander moment was when we, uh, uh, now I'm going to have to forget the card. Um, Eye of the Storm. I had Eye of the Storm in play with maybe eight cards in it, and my last opponent and I spent, I think, 45 minutes on three or four turns and mm-hmm. literally just had to get out a whiteboard you and try whiteboard. and write out, this, write out the stack and try and resolve it. And that's not what I want to do all the time, but every once in a while. Sometimes you have a couple beers and you really want to get a whiteboard out and talk about rules of magic with your friends. And I lost. I, I, I actually do kind of like, in a, you know, we, we talked a little bit about EDH. I like to play the occasional game of EDH. And I like when it gets to the point where you've given up on, like, the competition and now you're just helping each other try and figure out what the hell is happening. Trying <laughs> to if, play an EDH game correctly is a right. really fun fun game. Everyone is invested in trying to make sure that the rules are not accidentally violated, regardless of whether it benefits them or not, because it's just, all right, we invented this system. We, we, we put this thing into motion. Let's see if we can actually realize it accurately now. Maybe we should just play Judge Tower. I actually have a Judge Tower list I've been working on. Someday we will do it. It's the thing that I want to do. But not tonight. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Anthony, strategic strategic complexity. You talked a little bit about this. How How do you think about the strategic complexity in your own cube? So the way that I think about it is that it is an effect that even if it doesn't have a lot of comprehension or board complexity, can do a lot of different things and offer a lot of opportunities for a knowledgeable player player that is trying to play it strategically to get a lot of extra value out of a card. I probably should have written down some examples or something. Nah, you're fine. I mean, like, this this applies to any kind of modal spell. This, of course, applies to you know, scalable cards. Anything has X in its cost. This applies to even non-modal cards. I mean, like... I always say that, you know, the original modal spell is just Lightning Bolt. Lightning Bolt, if you, you know, if the rules were written differently such that damage was not a thing and instead Lightning Bolt said target opponent loses three life or target creature is buried unless it has greater than three toughness or target planeswalker is buried unless it has greater than three loyalty and if it doesn't, then you take three loyalty counters off of it. Like, you could write it out. buried because they could still regenerate. Oh, is buried buried not allowed to regenerate? Mm -hmm. Correct. I, I just thought that was the old term for no, destroy. They had, they, had to, they had to come up with a special term because so many things said destroy can't be regenerated. Wow, I didn't realize that destroy can't be regenerated was keyworded. Anyway, it doesn't have to be an explicitly modal spell, you know, in air, in air quotes, to be a modal card still. So all those things, I think, are things that open up more decisions for your players to make, which gives them an opportunity to express their strategy and skill. Totally. And even better the way that those cards interact. So not just, here's my lightning bolt, I can do these many things, but also if I have a creature with first strike, I can destroy an even bigger creature on defense. Another card that I really, really love, which is sort of a signpost for me, is White Mane Lion, which is just one of like my first sort of feelings of leveling up as a player, was seeing this card that has like what's on its surface kind of a downside, um, and then realizing, wow, you can actually leverage this to get a ton of value in a lot of different situations. So that's why it's been sort of a, a pet card stuck in here for me. Yeah, we all have those little cards that mean that much to us. Those little moments in our magic history where we leveled up. So do you only try and maximize strategic complexity or do you ever think actually this there could be too much of a good thing and we need to cut back on strategic complexity i've never come up with a point where it feels problematic like the the first two definitely like people just will skip over cards and not read them or you know feel bad because they don't understand the game uh, or like you said go into that sort of shutdown mode because the board has just gotten too complicated 
I think that strategic complexity is bounded by what you're actually able to understand. So I don't think you can run into that same issue, can you? I don't know. I don't necessarily think so. I, I will say this is the kind of thing where I've heard people say that they avoid planeswalkers because of all of the endless options they offer, at least the ones that have you know lots of different abilities. And I think those people are in some ways saying they are avoiding a particular type of strategic complexity. They don't want players to have to make so many decisions in every single turn because it can get a little uh, tiresome for certain people. So I think there are lines for some people, but, it, but I agree. I'm not looking to minimize that at all in my own environment. I'm trying to basically give my players as many decisions as they possibly can at every point in the game. and Right, but yeah. I think the valuable thing to observe is that these types of complexity are not independent factors. They all relate to each other. And a planeswalker, I would say the problem there is the board complexity or like the, the number of sort of listed decisions. Obviously, a card that literally just lists a bunch of modes also has more of all three times of uh, types of complexity. Well, so a planeswalker really, really... doesn't inherently have to affect the board beyond itself. Like, there are plenty of planeswalkers that don't produce tokens of any kind, and so I would argue that those aren't actually contributing that much to board complexity any more than any other permanent is. Uh, it's just okay. that they, I think they offer I this, re... like, depth of strategic complexity every single turn where you have now a new strategy to make, a new decision. I would maybe rephrase board complexity to not literally mean just, you know, creatures and combat and number of tokens and accounting of counters. It, it also just has to do with, like, the literal cards on the table and the number of decisions there are. So, you know, if you have a dozen cards with flashback in your graveyard, that would add to board complexity in a way in the same the same manner. And so we're just drawing a bunch of cards then in sure. some way. yeah. Even though cards again, these are, are sort of sort of fuzzy, but I think that sweet spot is those cards that have simple effects like a lightning bolt, but have that depth of ways that they can be used. Yeah, I, I think many many people would agree that is the kind of magic card they want to include as many of as possible in their cube. These cards that are very simple, they are potent, and they also have many applications that are never just dead in your hand. I, I find those cards to be very appealing for myself, and I, I see a lot of people that also like them. So I think there's a good case to be made for that. I think the most prominent way my approach to strategic complexity expresses itself in my cube is my strong devotion to lower CMC spells. I'm always basically always trying to lower my curve. If I can get an effect that is similar enough to an effect that exists on another card, but I can get it for one less mana, I will almost always pursue that cheaper option. And I still have a couple of expensive cards in my cube. I, I, I found actually that like, I only need to include exactly Crater Hoof Behemoth for someone to draft a big green deck. There doesn't have to be any other <laughs> eight mana spells in the entire cube, and it's actually my only creature above five mana. I have no sixes, no sevens, exactly one eight, and it's Crater Hoof Behemoth, and then nothing else in my green section. So I actually think that you don't need many of those for that archetype to still be supported, but I've pushed the curve as low as I can because I have felt like the lower the curve is, A, the quicker in the game my players get to a point where they're making strategic decisions and they're not just saying, well, cast these things on curve and, you know, do the obvious plays. And now we get to a point where things matter. I feel like as soon as you get to the point where you get to either cast two small spells or a big spell or remove their thing and hold up a counter or, you know, play a, a different thing to commit to the board, that's where those strategic decisions really come into play. And you specifically have avoided one CMC spells. And you mentioned this in your review of your cube. So talk a little bit more about why you avoid things that specifically one CMC or other low CMCs and uh, and how that relates to your approach to strategic complexity. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about interesting decisions in the developing portion of the game, why not throw in a bunch of tap lands into your cube? Because I don't think it's interesting. <laughs> Is the answer. <laughs> I, on the no, other I mean, hand, here's the thing. Like, that, uh... I, I actually do 
really like what having a tap land in your opener does to your decisions in the early turns of the game. And if I could always be guaranteed that, I would be happy to run some tap lands. What I hate is, ooh, <laughs> I hate it so much I got a hiccup. What I hate is needing to draw that fourth land to cast your board wipe to not die, and you did draw your fourth land, it just happened to be one of your two tap lands, and so, oh well, RNG'd, now you lose the game. Uh, that's one of the biggest feel-bads in Magic for me, which is why I avoid those tap lands so much. Though it is worth noting, there was a time where I had no tap lands in my cube. I, I, that's not true. I've had Treetop Village and Sheldock Island there from the beginning. There was a time where I had no tap lands outside of those two, and so none of my fixing lands were tapped. Now I am on some triomes, and I am going to be adding some of the Zendikar rising modal double face cards that come into play tap so more are sneaking their way in but uh but yeah i i like him in your opener i really do i just don't like him when you draw him yeah i mean i personally that doesn't affect me in the same way like i it's not adding that much variance versus just not drawing your fourth land at all and and that variance affects both players so uh, i i definitely understand where you're coming from but i might just be a little bit more tolerant to that kind of variance um because i, I really enjoy what a lot of the more interesting tap lands add to the game yeah, I think part of it, too, is that this is another power level thing where I think I'm priced out of a lot of the more interesting tap lands I might otherwise want to run because of the power level that I'm at. And so I'm not, in my estimation, missing out on a bunch by avoiding them at all costs, basically. That's that's definitely true. Yeah, like I, I would probably still be running like Tar Pit and Celestial Colonnade, maybe. Those are probably like the two I would still be on if I was still running them. But other than that, not much can hang. Poor land folks. You said land folks in your... What is land folks? Is that what you're describing man lands as now? Is it land Someone, folks instead? I, I heard this years ago. Somebody uh, said their favorite term for the man lands that was more gender uh, gender neutral was land folks. I like it. It's not as clear, but... Can you say folk lands? Folk, folk lands? folk lands? Does that work? We could do folk lands. Folk lands? Folk is kind of a hard word to say. It is. I feel like if you're not careful, it comes out as fuck lands. Folk lands. Folk lands. I would folk run lands, fuck lands, lands if they printed them. Hey, wizards, yeah, we'll put, if you're we'll put listening, an explicit tag secret, on this episode. Se- secret lair fucklands. Please, wizards. <laughs> <laughs> just just various, like, you know, the orgy dome at Burning Man. Oh, wait, I was joking. I was joking, but have you seen some of Re- Rebecca Gay's, or Rebecca Gay's latest artwork? Yeah, this would be amazing. Please, please. I, I do. I have looked at Rebecca Gay's art, and uh, it is great, especially. I mean, all of her art is great. I, I, I think it's beautiful. And yeah, she could do some good. Some good erotic magic lands. They're never going to do that, but that would be pretty sick. We're, this is a sex-positive show, okay? So we're not going to be weirded <laughs> out by, by sexuality. And, you know, uh, just give us some sex-positive uh, fuck lands, <laughs> wizards. <laughs> this is what happens when we record late at night, Anthony. Can't be trusted. So I do think there are a couple other things that are specific to Cube, uh, like areas that, that introduce new complexity. Basically because we are recontextualizing a bunch of cards that people have played in other environments. Um, I think people are actually just coming to the cube with a lot of expectations that maybe just don't actually apply in this particular context. And I think people are maybe more willing to recontextualize cards or it's a smaller number of cards that are reprints in a limited format. So this doesn't actually isn't as much of a problem to wizards designing new limited sets, but I think it actually is a real consideration in cubes. So specifically, one specific example is I avoided including Pestermite for the longest time because I know that players are going to see that and think, oh, well, this is a combo card. It just works with these other cards. And outside of that, it doesn't really have any application. And I think in my cube, it's actually just a fine card when it it does what it says it does. Right, Um, which is a good tempo card. 
so that's I think a bit of a concern. Is that something that you think about? Yeah, I I originally had I never supported Splinter Twin or Kiki combo in my cube, but I did for a long time have Pestermite, and I had that exact thing where someone was like, "Oh, I first picked Pestermite and then didn't see the combo, so fuck you, cube designer," which felt bad. I don't want players to be frustrated and you know feel that way. But I also was like, "This card is just fine. It's good and it's a good blue tempo card, and it has a lot of the hallmarks we just described of." a very flexible card that can be used in many ways, has yeah. a very reasonable floor, and sometimes can be very, very potent, depending on the certain context. It's nowhere near power for my cube now, so that's kind of how I got around to that. But yeah, I found it frustrating when people's expectations from another format or sort of outside knowledge of some other kind of magic would affect their card evaluations inside of my cube. But that's, of course, unavoidable. It's just how magic works, and so there's no getting out of that completely. Yeah, I mean, the idea that you would reevaluate everything from scratch and, like, try and re-understand what does Lightning Bolt do in every new context is also ridiculous. Like, it is critical that we are borrowing that knowledge. But it does sort of propose this interesting interesting challenge to Cube that I I think is a little bit unique. I think uh, along the same vein, just another pressure that makes Cube design a little bit more challenging is because we're painting with this sort of limited palette of existing cards, we might end up with a lot of cards that do very similar things in slightly different ways because they've, you know, fixed mechanics or reprinted them in a way that was flavorfully a little bit different. So we might end up wanting to run, like, cards that have Adapt and cards that have Monstrous in the same cube or cards that have Vanishing and cards that have Fading. And that actually does add a lot more complexity because... If you draft two of these cards, a lot of the knowledge of how those cards play out isn't as uh, portable anymore. You can't just say, like, oh, yeah, these cards, you know, I can shortcut how they work because they actually do work in slightly different ways. Vanishing and fading is a big offender of that. (laughs) It's very challenging. Talk about cards you always have to read. Which one of these says when I take the last counter off and which one says if I can't remove a counter? It's just oof. And again, that's just getting back to, like, more stuff that your players have to care about that doesn't actually matter. And if this was a normal limited set, they would just make them the same, because that would make sense. It's actually funny, you know, uh, another sort of facet of that is I called out Weaponcraft Enthusiast specifically as one of the, like, awesome, really flexible cards that does a pretty simple thing, but interacts with a lot of other cards in, in interesting ways. The fact, though, that that effect is keyworded is a extreme positive. Like, it allows a mental shortcut in the limited set where there are a lot of cards that use that same keyword. But in the cube, it being one of uh, one right. or two cards that have Fabricate, it's actually just adding more complexity. That you're like, yes. wait, what is Fabricate? If it just said what it did, it would actually be a lot simpler. That is something I come back to a lot because my battle box is restricted to only evergreen mechanics and... Mostly because I want my battle box to be more approachable for new players, and I want to avoid any of that comprehension complexity, and feels like having these mechanics in there would make things more complicated. And so oftentimes, it's like, this card is so simple. It's so elegant. It just has this dumb keyword on it that someone's going to read and be like, well, what, what is Battalion? Why do I care about what, what Battalion is? And it's like, right. just ignore, you know. That part, I think, is, a, that, that is I would describe, a, a common woe of the sandbox environment designer whether it's a cube a battle box anything else i this this comes up for me a lot in my my starter decks too we've talked briefly before about my monocolored starter decks which is a project i kind of come back to every six months or so and reevaluate and that is a place where i do try and explicitly limit comprehension and board complexity pretty dramatically and i very consciously think about the opportunities for strategic complexity like i want there to be like little learning moments baked into these deck lists where Somebody takes a deck, plays it, 
kind of as the cards are written without thinking about it, which is what all people do when they're new to magic. They just say, can I cast this card? Great, I do. What happens? And then they can learn as they get better at magic, like, oh, actually, there are situations where I'd want to discard a card, and that's what I do with this tormenting voice or whatever. And in those situations, there I so oftentimes come across, like, I wish this exact card existed. And I can think of, like, a very basic card that is not overpowered. It's not that good. It's just a, a very simple like, vanilla card, and it just has never happened to have been printed before. And it just reminds me of how much space there's still left in Magic. I've, I've, I've always wanted to patch little holes in uh, in Magic with uh, with just cards that I would design for that monocolor starter deck project because, yeah, it's just it's it's hard to, to limit that kind of complexity. It really is because, I mean, so many of the cards that we want to include were printed in very specific contexts where they're trying to support a specific mechanic and make it, you know, understandable within that context or a specific, like, flavor. Like, you, you uh, were dismayed by the fact that all the mutate cards say non-human and that was just a, a yeah. big part of sort of the the humans versus non-humans was part of the storyline they're trying to communicate and played totally fine and limited but in this new context it ends up being a bit of a, a bit more of a negative than you might expect in a similar nature I, I talked a little bit about how party the, the mechanic party was not my oh, yeah. favorite mechanic and i i still agree like it's not a thing i like for q but i don't like that kind of accounting but i have to say I think party, and you, you kind of alluded to this when we first talked about it, having played with it in Zendikar Limited now, I do think it's maybe the most brilliant implementation of any tribal mechanic I've ever seen because it allows for you to have tribal synergies without having the sort of on-rails just take every card of this type. And also, it allows there to be like these sub-tribes, right? Like there is a, a blue-red wizards deck, right? Uh, and wizards are just one chunk of the sort of party mechanic. And so all of those wizards are good in the wizards deck, but they're also good in any you know any red and anything else party deck or any blue and anything else party deck and it, it makes for this really beautiful kind of non-parasitic tribal environment which uh you know i think it's up there with like changelings in terms of things that make tribal actually maybe fun to draft so yeah absolutely uh, yeah no i think it's actually even a lot better than changeling like the the, the things that you laid out there are that these tribal things actually still fit into multiple spaces so it's not just all in get every single rogue and that's it and Another aspect is the rest of the cards in the format are um, largely emphasizing the kind of tribal where it says, as long as you control a wizard or similar things to that, where you don't just need to go all in and say, well, now I'm drafting wizards, I have to take every other wizard over everything else, no exception. You're more just thinking like, well, I want to make this work, I just need a certain amount of wizards. So it just makes you adjust your draft decisions just a little bit, not committing all the way in one direction or another. One of the cool effects it has, too, is that... I think, is it true that every color has at least one, or at least some of all of four types, or is it that they have a lot of two and then a little bit of a third? Uh, I think every color has all of them. There was a chart of this somewhere. I, th- I think you're right. I, Mark Rosewater talked about this in the, the podcast for this, and I can't remember what he said. But either way, the the cards that are that have one of the rarer types that is relevant to the party mechanic in their colors end up being higher picks than they would otherwise be by virtue of being hard mm-hmm. to come by. Like, you know, white is full of clerics and there's not that many wizards. And, you know, so if you, the white wizards actually get a little tiny bit of an edge over a card with the same mechanical text on it that just happened to be a, another cleric or another warrior, which I think is pretty interesting. Which really plays into the flavor it. in a cool way too. Like, here we are, we're about to go on an adventure in the plains. Uh, it's sure going to be hard to find a wizard, so we'll take whoever we can yeah, get. Yeah, we need a wizard. Look we around the need bar. A <laughs> well, this guy seems like kind of a crappy wizard, but at least he's a wizard. So, all right, I guess we'll take this person with us. Oh, God. Which bar do you want to go to? The plains bar? 
Yeah. Yeah, well, actually the planes well. Okay, so the, the blue bar is where you're gonna get mansplained. You're gonna go blue into bar's the gonna get weird. You're gonna go into the island bar and there's just gonna be a bunch of bros just explaining their vape rigs to you. I don't know. All the weird introverts are gonna be in the blue bar too. It's gonna be a lot of Which fighting. Is a it's gonna be a lot of fighting and, and like, you know, raucous mess and loud music in the red bar that one's not, not my I'm not scene going, i'm not going to the red bar i think a lot of people are going to choose the red bar though i think that's you know the the, the fun party bar yeah the white bar seems whatever what's the green bar is green bar is where it's at is it There's lots I mean, of trees <laughs> well but that that's so superficial what is the green bar actually like though it's about uh you, 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 you can't drink any drink you couldn't catch yourself you got you got to hunt it first then you can have the drink well it's honestly it's more about preserving the status quo appreciating the the vitality of the world around you these kinds of things okay so it's like they bring out a, a drink to you and it's under a big bell jar and it's full of some smoke and then you have to like just sniff it and that's here is like an oxygen bar is is that is that the is that the green bar no no it's it's more about natural ales and wild wild fermentations hey man oxygen's natural my next request from wizards please print a card called wild fermentation in a long enough time it will happen they're gonna run out of card names they already ran out of set symbols all the set symbols now are just a it's just like a hodgepodge of a transform tool no, no disrespect to the uh the designers working on these set symbols you have a very hard job to make it actually distinguishable from the 130 other set symbols or whatever but they're out of space they ran out it's all it's all over I want to end on a question for you, Anthony. So okay. last week I teased this little cube project I've been working on. I'm going to continue to tease you, listener, with this other cube project. We'll talk about it at some point in the future. But as regards to complexity, suffice it to say, this cube environment is probably the most complex cube environment I've ever designed in that it is very unapproachable to people that are not pretty enfranchised magic players and also pretty familiar with the cube. You have to know what's going on to sort of get it. And I had the experience of some people, maybe you, Anthony, like playing it once or twice and being like, you know what, this is just not for me. This complexity is too much and it's too weird and it's not the kind of complexity I am interested in and so I'm just out. But I had a lot of people, the majority of people I think, that you know played the cube, maybe got bodied, just got totally trashed, like the, the deck they drafted was non-functional. But what they actually did was they came back for more. They were like, I, I'm like need to dance with this flame now and figure out what it is that I did wrong and like come back and try and get more out of this. How? What do you think contributes to an environment where people will lose and say, I need to come back and figure this out versus people that will lose and just write it off to like a bad cube that's not fun? That is the hardest question. If I had an answer for that, I, I would have started the podcast with that. Well, people tuned in to us to help them, so to take a shot at it, at least. I think that I, w- I would observe two things. One thing that in this cube, the games tend to be fairly quick. So when your losses aren't drawn out, you are more likely to say, like, okay, that was interesting, let's take another shot, versus I'm exhausted and that was not fun. So I think speed is an interesting factor. Uh, I think the other one is just that there is a ton of... I don't know how to categorize it. Like, it's sort of strategic complexity... But it's more just you really have to know all this, like, information, which is literally not written on the cards because they interact in weird ways that are not what they were printed for. So I do see this well, sort of magic in... they interact in ways they were printed for. It's just that in this particular cube, you are only going to succeed by combining cards in ways. You are not going to succeed by using any other 
otherwise understood draft heuristic, right? You could sit down having never played any cube before and sit down at the MTGO cube, but you could draft a fine deck. You won't do great because you'll probably end up in, you know, green-black mid-range, but that deck will be functional. You'll have a chance. You'll win some games. And in this particular cube we're talking about, yeah, if you don't know what you're doing and you just sit down to draft like a normal draft, it's going to go horribly for you. So I do see the appeal of having a short loss experience that leads to you learning something or i guess just receiving a clear lesson like okay if i draft those two cards together that can lead me to a victory which kind of makes me think about my own cube in a different light where i on one hand i'm saying like i want it to be more approachable to a a pretty broad variety of skill levels but also like hmm you won this game because you like used your removal spell on the right turn three turns ago and managed to turn the tide uh, is a less obvious thing that I can also see that maybe that is kind of where the, the limit of strategic complexity comes in, where it can actually be a lot less enticing to somebody who's not seeing it. Yeah, that is true. It becomes less rewarding. And I think it's also why, as cube designers, we pretty much only get feedback in the form of this card is too good, this card is not good enough. And it's because people oftentimes lack the awareness to realize like, oh, what actually won this game for my opponent was this well-timed card from six turns ago. And it just took this amount of time for that value they gained at that moment to to go to seed and to actually like, you know, see fruition. And instead they're like, well, this card beat me and they played it and I lost. And so that card's the problem. And it's actually like, well, it could have been, you know, a different problem. So yeah, it's hard. It's very difficult. I, I agree, Anthony. I think making losses tolerable is the best way you can make people want to come back to your cube and be invested in the strategic complexity. And I think speed is probably the most important factor there. Speed and then people being able to obviously see how they could have done something differently such that they wouldn't have lost in that way. And right. that being a relatively short line. And if those two things are present, I think you'll get people that will want to try again because they'll say like, well, that was quick, so I'm not furious and want to go to bed and never play magic ever again and also if i had done this one thing differently i could have not been in that situation and so now i want to try again and i'll do that thing differently and then you get this kind of feedback loop of people they're invested in trying to improve makes sense to me so the big question is how do you make games faster without just making it an aggro slugfest i don't know tune in next week we'll figure that problem out for you too this has been lucky paper radio thank you for tuning in everybody it's been a pleasure having you all here in our homes for a magic talk for Anthony and I to talk to you about cardboard with pictures and words on it, which is what we do now. All of our music is produced by DJ James and Nasty. And if you want to have your cube on the show, email it to mail at luckypaper.co, like I said earlier. And rate, rate review us on iTunes. We haven't said that lately, Anthony. Go on iTunes and give us five stars and say that Anthony made your cube better with his beautiful, beautiful voice. Have you accepted your voice is beautiful yet? No. What will it take? Medals. And wizards to make the fuck lair secret lands. <laughs> Do it, wizards, you cowards, you won't. <laughs> you, man, other people... <laughs> wait, I, wait, I mixed that up. It's not the fuck lair. It's the, that's something different. <laughs> something very different. Anyway, we have to go now because this podcast is going rapidly downhill. Thanks for listening, and thank you for talking about magic with me, Anthony. Anytime.